0: hey guys we wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning in check back weekly to stay up to date with what god is doing here in the life of our church to learn more information you can find us online at sturkey.church our prayer here at the church at sturkey hills is that you are moved by this message guys thanks for tuning in and have a blessed week Well, amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we're at today as we navigate through this amazing book found in the Old Testament. You can find the book of Psalms, go left a few books, and you'll run into this guy. It's an amazing book. And today we're going to talk about this book. And just like that video told us or proclaimed, it, this book is about God and His greatness. But in His greatness, He has chosen to include you in the storyline, in the narrative. It's not a distant thing for somebody else. It is for you. He wants to include you in the greatness of his agenda. And that's what we're going to look at today because uh, no matter when this book was written, no matter when you read it, it has uh, application in your life today, no matter who you are and where you are. Now, to bring you up to speed, uh, this is going to be a two-part message And because it's an amazing chapter tucked away in the Old Testament and I want us to really get in and buy in and unpack what all is in this chapter, chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah. And to bring you up to speed, so what has happened is God has called a guy, Nehemiah, who is in his comfort zone at Susa, which is the resort center for the rich and famous. And he says, listen, I've got a project for you. Israel is undone. It's the, walls, the walls are down and the gates are burned. And I want you to go back and be in charge of building the wall around the city of Jerusalem. What, what was once a strong nation, what, was, what once had a strong headquarters in Jerusalem where the temple was found, it's in uh, disarray and it's in defeat and so I want you to be in charge of it well he gets this vision man it's just birthed in his soul and so he goes back and he he sells the people markets the idea to not just uh the king but also the people of Israel and they begin this project And it's rebuilding the wall. Now, this wall is not a small project. It's over a couple of miles long. It's about 40 feet high, 8 feet wide at the top so chariots could pass, strong towers, gates. It's, It's a serious project. And they come together by families and groups. And he distributes the workload. And the project is completed literally in 52 days. It is the handiwork of God. Now, in this moment, what has happened is now the nation realized, man, All I've ever heard about man having a relationship with God and God doing cool and amazing things in their midst was something at a distance. It was something in our history books, something that our ancestors talked about, but we've never experienced that. We've never participated in that, but now all of a sudden, man, we are up close and personal. It is obvious that God is doing something in our midst. And so in that moment, they realized, man, not only have we been liberated from captivity... And, and set in the freedom of our own people, not only that, but now we feel the presence of God in our lives, so spiritually we've been liberated. And so it felt good to them. And in that moment, you know what they thought. They said they thought, okay, what, what took us... From where we once were, full circle to where we are now, what is the thing that caused that sequence of events where we as a people would get sideways with God, that we would get distracted and separated from the greatness of who God is in our life? What is that thing? Well, they knew what their ancestors knew that you need to know today, 2,500 years later, and that is this. There is a link That links you to the greatness and the amazing nature of God. And that link is this book. That link is his word. And all too often in the history, in the timeline of mankind, the reason that people get separated, distracted, uh, uh, um, sideways with God is because simply this is not the link. This becomes the missing link, and we need to do everything possible to ensure that it is not the missing link in our life as individuals and in our life as a church, and so in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to see five things that will help us keep this link alive in our life and avoid the prospect of it being a missing link. Now, before we get into it, I, I want to talk about this book because it's, it's worthy of understanding the greatness of this book. And I was in a conversation this week and somebody was talking about it last night talking about a speaker who was speaking to a group of students and young people and, and their word was is boring. That's what they said to the guy. He he's a good guy, he was boring. Okay? And 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 I was like, why is he boring? Well, it was just like a history lesson. Well, sometimes history can be a little boring unless you're a history buff, but also sometimes we need a little history. And so today, I want you to pardon me. I'm going to give you a little bit of history because we need to go back to the foundation to understand and wrap our minds and our, and our souls around the greatness of God's Word. Because we, the missing link is when we no longer have a priority for God, God's Word in our life. And, and 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 you can look at your own personal life. I'll guarantee it. And the closer you get to God's word, the closer you feel to God. And the more the enemy uh, is defeated in your life, and the more you move away from God's word, the 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 more the enemy is successful in your life. You you can you can test it. The enemy knows how much. Your life is saturated with, saturated with God's word. And when it's not saturated with God's word, he knows where to attack. We begin to be, believe lies. We begin to pursue things that are not true. And next thing you know, we are captivated, enslaved in this thing that we were once de- uh, liber- uh, uh, liberated and delivered from. And so uh, and so, we need to get that. Now, how do we get the reality of God's word? How do we develop a a pursuit a desire to pursue god's word well we need to go back and realize and remember what it is that god has delivered us from this week we celebrated our our independence day fourth of july i love fourth of july i mean you got easter that's my day you got christmas that's number two day okay you got thanksgiving and fourth of july man it's a toss-up thanksgiving you get to eat that's awesome Fourth of July, you get to eat and just celebrate freedom. Now, I don't care. I don't pretend. I don't hide from it. I stinking love the United States of America. I love our country. I love that God has sovereignly ordained for me to call America my home on this rock. Okay? Of all the places on the planet, this is where I'm glad he put me. I love it here. And we're free. And so I, I, I applaud. I embrace. I have a heart of gratitude to all of those who died to to gain our freedom, all of those who died uh, to protect our freedom. I love law enforcement who who enforce uh, laws so that we're free to to be civil with each other. I mean, I I just love living in America. But the reason I love the 4th of July, most of all, is because it reminds me of a greater Independence Day. It reminds me of a, a greater day where freedom was afforded for me. It was a day when Christ died on the cross and a day when in my life I received that gift. And it reminds me of the greatness of what it means to be not just physically free in a free country, but to be spiritually free right here in my own soul where God has redeemed me and set me free. It's greater than national independence. And and so just like I applaud and and embrace and love those who have died for our country, I, I applaud and love those who have died and and did everything possible to deliver the truth of the gospel gospel to preserve it so that i would hear it as a 10 year old boy and be saved and made right with god and so so independence and fourth of july is a big day and sometimes we just need to remember that we don't need to take for granted what god has given us Which leads me to the point, how do we maintain a proper relationship with this book in our life? Well, Jesus told a story about um, a a man who had loaned money to two different people. One of them, he loaned five, and the other, he loaned 50. And on this given day, the lender decided, you know what, I'm going to erase your debt, and then Jesus asked a simple question. He said, "Which one of those who whose debt were forgiven, which one do you think loved the lender more?" And so the man says, "Well, I would guess the one who was forgiven more," and that's the correct answer. Sometimes we need to go back to that place and realize just how much we've been forgiven. Look at your neighbor and say, "I know you. He forgave a whole bunch." You go ahead and tell them, yeah, you know you're thinking that, okay? And it's true. That's how much he's done for us. And so sometimes we need to be reminded that this book is not just a book. This book is the infallible, inerrant, eternal word of the living God. I want you to say those words with me. Everybody say infallible. Infallible. Everybody say inerrant. Inerrant. Everybody say eternal. Eternal. What you just claimed right there is God's word is accurate to the finest detail, and it will be for all of eternity. And it's good to know, man, that this thing, that this book doesn't change. That the truth of God is fixed in time from eternity past to eternity future. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. This book must be the centerpiece of your life. It must be the centerpiece of your pastor's life it must be the centerpiece of your family life it must be the centerpiece of our nation's life when, when we no longer use this as the standard of measure as the ultimate truth for our decision making that guides us in, in all that we do we're in big trouble and if you'll look at your life you know it's true in those moments in time when you've colored outside the lines of this book, of this standard, of this truth it costs you you know it did You can look back, I can look back, and we know that is real. So what's the big deal about the Bible? Well, I'm going to give you just some thoughts and some history because I want you to understand the greatness of this book. I want to remind you of the greatness of this book. It is the most popular book ever printed. It is the most printed book ever printed. It is the most studied, the most debated, and the most quoted book ever written. It is a collection of 66 smaller books penned by 40 different authors over a time span of over 1,500 years. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. In it, we find five books about our beginnings. In it, we find 12 books of history. In it, we find five books of poetry, five major prophets, 12 minor prophets, four gospels, one history of the first church, 13 epistles of Paul, 8 general epistles written by others, and one book of the end times. This book is a complete book that will tell you everything you need to know about you and everything you need to know about God and everything you need to know to live a productive and fruitful life for the God who created you. It does not tell you all there is to know. Not about this life, not about your life, and not about God's life. Because pen and ink and paper does not exist enough to write all that God knows. And so he simply shares everything you need to know to help you navigate through this life. In this book, you will find simplicity of truth. Simple enough for a small child to wade around in like he's in the kiddie pool. And yet at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, in this same book, truth and revelation of God that will make the brightest minds in all of history scratch their heads in the greatness and the wonder and the awe of the God who wrote it. That's the beauty of it. We have a grandson. We have a granddaughter, too. She's not talking much. But our grandson, he's starting to learn about Jesus. All right? He, he, he starts, he's singing, Jesus loves me. Now, he might roll that straight into happy birthday. Okay, but he's getting it. Okay, the simplest truth for the smallest mind. And yet theologians will never understand the greatness. I tell people like this, I'm, I'm simple, okay? I'm simple-minded. I, when it comes to God's Word, I, the simple, I, I'm pretty simple. If you want deeper, more more uh, uh, enriching conversations, you can talk to Clark. Okay, Clark, he's, he's, he, he likes diving in a deep end. okay? It just, I I scratch my, I'm the the guy scratching his head in the deep end. I'm, man, I do good in the shallow waters, okay? But it's all that you could ever need. It's found right here. You say, well, okay, you've had these conversations, I know you have, where somebody says, I just don't know if that's really all of God's Word. I mean, there's other great writings that are available. There's other things out there that we could uh, bring into our life. I mean, what about the Book of Mormon? I mean, that's a revelation to Joseph Smith. What about that? What about the Apocrypha? What about this? What about that? Well, you can, you can read all that you want to. Or you can simply trust that God has preserved a book that is all conclusive and it cannot does not need to be added to. You say, well, how do we get this book? How, who decided that out of all of the things ever written, these 66 books would be compiled into one book called the Holy Bible, and that would be all that we can bank our lives and our eternal destinies on is what's found in these 66 books. Where, where did we get that? Well, it's called the canonization of Scripture. Now, in early, in early days, what happened is there was a bunch of writings, and so a group of people, God-fearing Holy Spirit filled people began to ask, okay, what is going to, when does this stop? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, these men met over 180 times in councils to determine what God's word would definitely be. What would be the bookends of Genesis and Revelation and the the other 64 books therein? What would that be? B, now how did they decide? Well, they were learned men, very educated, brilliant men. men. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, as they began to put this book together, they asked a series of questions to help them discern which should be included. They called them checkpoints. Here were some of their checkpoints. Who is the author of this letter or this book? Did students of the disciples of Jesus quote from it? Does the writing contradict other writings? Does it edify, inspire, and convict the reader? Does it speak with God's authority? Does it impact with power, with the power of God? Was it accepted by the early people of God? Not only that, but I want you to understand that this book was not simply mailed uh, airmail from God to us. Bam, there it is. It landed under a maple tree, and we have this book. It was delivered by God Two men inspired by the Holy Spirit from the the following methods of delivery. From hearts and hands of men delivered by angels, loud voices, still small voices, nature, animals, dreams, visions, stones, dice, and Jesus, God incarnate. 3,800 times in this book, the, the phrase, thus saith the Lord, appears. That means God said. Jesus said... About the Old Testament, in Matthew 5, 17, an interesting statement. He said, Do not think that I have come to destroy the Old Testament or the law, but I came to fulfill it. Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. You know what Jesus was saying about the Old Testament written in Hebrew? He said there's not a punctuation mark on that thing that won't be complete. Every single jot, which is like an apostrophe, it's a dot. Every little punctuation mark is accurate to the detail. And when it's all said and done, everything said in the Old Testament will come to pass with with precise uh, with precise completion. And then he says to wrap it up in Revelation about the bookend on the right, the end time writing, Revelation 22:18. 18, Jesus says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city Which are described in this scroll. Now, speaking of the Bible, one writer defines it as this. He capstones it and he says, This is what you'll find in this incredible book. He says, You will find the state of man, the way, the mind of God, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the joy of believers, the doctrines in it are holy, its precepts are binding, and its histories are accurate, and its decisions are immutable. It contains light to direct you, food to sustain you, and comfort to cheer you. It is a traveler's roadmap, a pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, a soldier's sword, the Christian standard for living. It is in it we find paradise restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell exposed. Christ is the object. Our good is its design, and the glory of God is is its end. It should saturate the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. We should all read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It offers life, it warns of judgment, and it will exist forever. It invokes the highest responsibility and yet rewards the greatest labor. It condemns those who stand against it. It is the Bible, the infallible, inerrant, eternal. Word of God. You see, this is more than just a book. This is more than just writings of men. This is the theo-neustis, the theo-god-neustis, like pneumonia, breath. It is the breath of God. And some people want to argue and say, well, I just believe it's difficult for men to determine what is God's writings and what are not God's words. We had a conversation not long ago. We were at Family's on Mission doing some work for a, a lady in our town. And there's a couple of young guys walking down the street dressed pretty nice on a Saturday and it was about 90 degrees let me just go ahead and tell you if you ever see two young guys walking down the street dressed in nice clothes on a sunny afternoon or a rainy afternoon or a snowy day and they're marching down the street knocking on people's doors they're either Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. they're not Christians okay how do I know that Anybody in here been knocking on doors, dressed up on a Saturday on a hot, rainy, sunny, snowy, miserable day? No. I ain't seen none of y'all knocking on my door. Okay? What I have seen is Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And so I took the opportunity to meet them in the middle of the road. Okay? I wasn't attacking them. I was just anxious to talk to them. And in his dialogue, he quoted a scripture. And it was a good scripture. Well, in my dialogue, I quoted a scripture. And he says, yeah, we don't believe that part of the Bible is, is factual. And I said, oh, you don't? He said, no. I said, well, how did you determine that your part of the Bible is factual? The Holy Spirit. I said, well, that's funny because the the Holy Spirit is what convicts me that the whole book is accurate and true. And I said, here's the thing. If you want to pick and choose what you believe and pick and choose what you don't believe to be true, where do you draw the line? You see, I'm a preacher who believes this book is true from the index to the maps, okay, And when we start dissecting and deciding what we believe is true and what is not true, we are in big trouble. So I say let's just embrace the whole thing. The good, the bad, the ugly. Let's just buy into all of it and see what God does through it in our life. And so it is an amazing book. In it, we see who he is. We find out who we are. We find out who God wants us to be. And we find out how we can get there from here. It tells a boy how to become a man. It tells a girl how to become a lady. It tells a man how he can be a husband. It tells a woman how she can and should be a wife. It instructs me on how to be a child of God, a husband of my wife, a a father and a grandfather. It helps me find out how I can be a child of the Most High God, living full of His Spirit in a world going to hell. It helps me know how I can be an employee to a company or to an organization. It helps me know how I can be a preacher, how I can be a citizen of this great. Great country. How I can be a church member? How I can be a preacher? How I can live full? How I can live free? How I can live victorious? And it's all right here in this book. And yet, often we don't pick it up. We just kind of wing it. Anybody in here would be willing to confess that a lot of our Christian life we just kind of winged it. Most guys do more poorly at that than women do. Women have a tendency to follow directions better than men. Now, you may be married to a woman that doesn't, but most of them do. And this comes out at Christmas time, when you have to put together like a bicycle. And the guy is responsible, maybe, in a lot of households, putting together the bicycle. And in the bicycle box comes the parts and a manual. Guys, who in here says, I don't need a manual? Anybody in here? Maybe you start with the manual, but all of a sudden you realize that manual is not written well. So we chunked the manual. And the next thing we know, we got a box of parts left over. And we put one of those stinking push nuts. Anybody know what a push nut is? It's a little red cap. It's got a little thing with teeth on it. And it's one direction on. You you get a cutting torch to get that thing on. Okay? And they don't send you no extras because they thought you were going to use the book. Okay? Now, women, they'll read the directions. Okay? If you're on a trip... I don't need, yeah, I don't need GPS. I know where I'm going. Oh, yeah, you know where you're going. You're going to Lostville is where you're going. Okay? The women will check out the map. They'll check out before they go. It's just different. But all of us have a, have a tendency to think, I've got this. And with God, never, ever, ever be guilty of looking at God and saying, hey, thanks for your word, but I've got this. And God would say, yeah, I know what you've got. You've got an enemy who's going to take control of your life because you're not paying attention to the book, the guideline for living Job understood the greatness of the word of God in twenty-three, twelve, Job says I have not departed from the commands of his lips I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my allotted portion you know what he means? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I I am hungrier for God's word than I am bread on my table. On my daily food portion, I would rather have God's word. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect and it preserves one's life. The rules set down by the Lord are reliable and impart wisdom to the inexperienced. Isn't that good? He says, no matter how bright you are or unbright you are. Okay, it, No matter where you are on the IQ spectrum, okay, whether you have a low score or a high score, it doesn't matter. God's word is for you. There's a, he, he has given everything you need no matter where you are. Verse 9, he says, uh, the commands to fear the Lord are right and they endure forever. The judgments given by the Lord are trustworthy and absolutely just, never wrong. Verse 10, they are greater than the value of gold than even a great amount of pure gold. They bring greater delight than honey, than even the sweetest honey from a honeycomb. So we must never allow God's word to become a missing link between us and God. This must be the link that binds us together. Nehemiah chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1, the first point. We must have an active appetite Look at your number and say, you hungry? Just say it, you hungry? Just look at him. say, you hungry? See, she, Jay just looked at me like, what did Jay say? Yeah, you hungry. I, I wondered, I wonder, is that something that a redneck that's a hybrid between Tennessee and Alabama butchering the Eng- English language says? Or is this something that other people say? You look at your spouse or your children, you say, you hungry? Anybody else say that or is it just me? Okay, me and you. Okay, right there. You hungry. All right, it's a good phrase. You ought to add it into your repertoire. Just look at your spouse after church and say, you hungry? Okay, they'll know exactly what you mean. Well, the question is when it comes to God's word, you hungry. Are you hungry? Now, listen what happens in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now keep in mind they've just finished building the wall. They're celebrating their liberty and their freedom and their independence. They're celebrating the fact that what was only known in, in the history books, now it's up close and personal. It is real to them. Listen to what happens in verse 1. It says, Now all the people gathered together in the plaza, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Verse 2, so is so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which included men and women and all those able to understand what they heard. And this happened on the first day of the seventh month. So he read it before the plaza in front of the water gate from dawn till noon <clears throat> before the men and women and those children who could understand. All the people now were eager to hear the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a towering wooden platform constructed for this purpose. And standing near him on his right were other people. <laughs> yeah, that's all mine. The other people right there. Yeah, you're, you can go ahead and read those if you want to. Okay, be careful not to say any dirty words while you're throwing those letters out there. Okay? Now, he, he's up there and he's pretty, Now, what's wrong with this picture? Two things. What, what's wrong with this picture? All the people come together and they said, Ezra... You're the scribe, you're the priest, bring the book, okay? They had an appetite. They were hungry for what God would now say since He had delivered them and performed a miracle in their world in building that wall in 52 days. And and now, man, what would God have for us? They were hungry. And, And so the first thing that's wrong with this picture is they're just extremely hungry for the Word of God. That's not normal. We take it for granted. What's the second thing that's wrong with this picture? (laughs) He read it from the break of dawn till high noon. Oh, five-hour sermon. Yeah. Y'all get antsy on my little 25-minute. No, I don't preach 25 minutes. I'm just kidding. Okay, on my little 45-minute sermonette, all right? I'm going to try a five-hour one. I ain't going to tell you when it's going to be because you'll stay at the house. But... I'm going to try five hours, see how that works, okay? Yeah, five hours. They had an appetite, man. They were hungry for what God would say to them. And often in this world, we're hungry for everything under the sun but the Word of God. And nothing will fill that void in your soul when you're a believer like the Word of God. And so we've got to make it part of our diet. Now, now, what makes us hungry? We don't know what hungry is, quite honestly. I'm looking around, and there ain't no hungry people in here. Now, you may be saying, yes, I am. I'm starving to death. I didn't get to eat no breakfast. Okay, you, no, you're not hungry. You are not hungry. You are not starving. Anybody ever say they're starving? <laughs> you lie. You are not starving, okay? And the closest I've ever been to starving would have been a seven-day fast, a water-only fast. I wasn't starving on day seven. I wasn't starving on day six or five, even four. Day two, hmm, son, I could have eaten a chair leg, all right? I mean, starving, day two. Why? Because starving, being hungry for something, is developed by one of two things. First, there's, there's, there's a void that has not been filled, okay? So it's just there's an appetite that's already there, and you haven't put anything in there. The other way an appetite is Uh, happens is that you feed something and develop a pattern so it 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 develops this appetite for regularity of receiving what it is you're putting in it let me give you an example my father-in-law who i love is a great man is at the nhc in terrible condition he's 86 years old and and he may live a day he may live five years he's at that place where you just can't tell but he had a stroke, he's got a broken hip, and he's just in terrible condition. But his diet, before he fell and, and, and his life got worse, pretty much consisted of Coca-Cola and honey buns. Okay, dream come true, okay? And so my wife went to Sam's to get him some honey buns, two big boxes of honey buns. Anybody here like a honey bun? Okay, yeah. Well, I, I like honey buns, but I try to eat somewhat right some of the time. And honey buns, we just don't have them laying around because they don't lay around. There's a big rat in our house that gets in there and eats them, all right? So my wife ended up with two boxes of honey buns. She put them in our pantry. So about, I don't know, three, four weeks ago, I go in there. Oh, honey bun. It's about 10 o'clock at night. You know, that's the God-given time to eat a honey bun, okay? (laughs) Open up a honey bun, ate a honey bun, big glass of milk, slept like a baby, okay? So tomorrow night, man, 10 o'clock, well, you know, I slept pretty good last night. I think I'll go get me another honey bun. I went in there, got me another honey bun, a big glass of milk, ate a honey bun, glass of milk, slept like a baby. Only then did I realize they're laced with crack or something because by day three I had to have a honey bun, okay? So next thing I know, there's two empty boxes of honey buns that, Ke- that Kendra did not eat. And there's only two of us living in that house. And so it dawned on me I'm addicted to honey buns. Now here's the thing. I had developed in my soul, in my being, Um, An appetite for honey buns and milk about 10 o'clock at night. Why? Because it was repetitive. And my body just developed this desire, this appetite for something being regularly put into my being. With God's word, most of us have the first. If you're born again and the spirit of God lives in you, you have a natural inclination and desire for God's word. Yeah, it's natural. Now, the enemy will suppress it. Your choices will suppress it, but it's in there. It's in there. But you're starving. You've, you, you've, you haven't fed that, and there's, a, there's an, a, already an appetite in there. And, and I'm telling you, here's how i determined this. I was saved when I was 10 years old. There's nobody in this place who hates reading more than me. I, I can tell you that. I was wired not to read. Okay, If they would have had words like bouncing around, running around, I could catch them. I, then I would have read. But just to sit down and read, couldn't do it. And in 1988, and I only remember this story this week because a Gideon was in my office, which, I, which by the way, this is pretty cool. He, he didn't come to, to give me Bibles. He came to give our church two pieces of property, pretty cool as a tax write-off. I said, let me pray about it. Yeah, we're a good recipient of that. Okay, but in that conversation, he's a Gideon, and I got to tell him the story that I didn't, I didn't know the Bible. I was exposed to it, but I didn't. It didn't penetrate, and I didn't know. And then in 1988, God put us under a man of God who preached the Word of God with power and conviction, and what came from him penetrated into me. And I thought, okay, I'm supposed to be reading the Bible. And I had a li- we were moving, and I found this little red Gideon Testament. I've told it in here sometimes. And I took that little red Gideon Testament and put it in my pocket. And next thing you know, I'm just going to be real with you. I was working as an engineer supervisor at Mueller Company in Chattanooga. I went to the bathroom, sit-down bathroom. You know what I'm talking about. I took out that Gideon Testament, and I had a yellow highlighter. This is in 1988, the only color they made, okay, yellow. I said, I'm, I opened up that little Red Testament. I started reading the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. I'm like, man, that's pretty cool. Genea- no, it ain't. It's genealogy. And then I, oh, that's pretty cool. Next thing you know, I needed a roller. <laughs> it's all good. And, I'm, I, re- I, and I, 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 I couldn't stop. It came alive. And what I had heard people say that the word of God is living and that it, that it will jump into your life and become real. It happened to me, and 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 I didn't. I, I did not. I could not believe it because I hate to read, and I couldn't. I would stop at a traffic light, and people would blow their horns because I'd, I'd forget about sitting in traffic and I was reading the Word. That's the appetite that's in you. It just needs to be unleashed. The second thing I want to encourage you is to develop an appetite by by. By putting the Word of God into your life so your life begins to expect more of it. And then when you miss it, you kind of feel naked because you didn't read the Bible. Okay? It's that kind of a book. It is a living thing. And so these people, they said, we want it. Bring it to us. And he started reading. Five hours later, they are still standing there spellbound. And so, so we need to develop this kind of passion in our life. Now, how do we get there? How do we we get to the place where we think God's word is important enough for us to want to develop an appetite? Sometimes we need to go back to the place when God set us free. That moment in time, man, when we received Christ and his grace came into our life and saved us. And in that moment, we realize, man, I'm a sinful person. And yet some reason down in my core... I'm keenly aware that there is a God who created me who is madly and passionately in love with me. And so much so, he came to this earth and died a sinner's death for me in my place. And now he's inviting me into his family forever. And in that moment when you realize, man, how brutally bad you are and how graciously good he is, it's in that moment that all of a sudden... If that's who he is, and this is him, then I need to know this. I want to know more about that God who loves me so dearly. And this, by the way, this is God. This this is Jesus, is what this is, in paper and ink. You say, how do you get that? John chapter 1. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God read a little further and it says and the word now takes on person this is the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth we realize this is Jesus man this Jesus fulfilled everything in this book this is who he is and so we we, we want to know the one who saved us more we want to know the king the one we call lord or king we want to know him more get in this book get in this book so we have to develop a place where we realize how great a thing God has done for us. We need to realize we need to realize that our appetite for God's word is only as real as the degree to which we understand how much we've been forgiven of I want to want to preach from a position of appetite. I want to be hungry for His Word. I want to be hungry for you to receive His Word. I, I don't pretend about what I believe about this Word. I, I don't pretend. I don't hide. And if you disagree with any of the things I'm getting ready to say, it's quite all right. I invite you to stay. Invite you to come and talk to me. But I want you to know regarding this Word, where this church is, what this church is built upon, and who the pastor is that preaches here most regularly. And this is where I stand as a believer in this book. I believe in a six literal day creation account found in Genesis. I believe in a first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God. I believe in the sanctity of marriage, one man, one woman, one God for one life. I believe in the value of life beginning in the womb. But at the same time, I believe in a very real enemy and his name is Satan. I believe in a very real sin curse that all of us are born under. I believe in a global flood as a result of sinfulness. I believe in a little family led by a faithful little man named Noah. I believe in a great big boat sailing across a flooded globe. I believe in a little boy who sat sail in a reed basket. The same little boy would grow up to see a burning bush that was not consumed. That same man would, would part a sea leaving a dry bottom. I would receive a tablet with ten commandments given by God. I believe in a wall that collapsed at the sound of trumpets and screaming people. I believe in a prophet being swallowed by a big fish and thrown up on the third day. I believe in three Hebrew boys standing in a fiery furnace and yet not consumed. I believe in a prophet named Elijah who called fire down from heaven that consumed the the, the stones, the sacrifice, and reached out and licked the water up out of the moat around it. I believe in a young man who slept with lions. I believe with a little shepherd who killed a giant with a rock. I believe... Moving forward, in Jesus being born of a virgin, I believe that he was baptized by John the Baptist. I believe he defeated the enemy on Temptation Mountain using a few simple scriptures from the book of Deuteronomy. I believe that Jesus walked on water. I believe Jesus turned water into wine. I believe he calmed the storms and fed thousands of people with a happy meal. I believe he gave sight to the blind and sound to the deaf and motion to the paralytic. He commanded the fish of the sea and he raised the dead. He was God in the flesh. I believed he lived a sinless life, was brutally beaten, unrecognizable, crucified on a cross, buried in a borrowed tomb of stone, and yet rose up from the dead on the third day. I believe he revealed himself to many people before uh, before he ascended to be back with the father from where he came i believe in i believe everything jesus did was a demonstration of the love of god towards sinful people i believe it provided a way for us to be forgiven made new and accepted to god i believe that jesus is still alive today and forevermore i believe he's coming back to get me i believe it could be soon i believe in a real heaven for those who place their faith in jesus for salvation i believe in a real hot hell for those who don't i got every bit of that from this book right here Thank you, brother. And I'm telling you, he didn't give it to me because I'm special. He gave it to me because I'm a child of his. Adopted into the kingdom through Jesus' son, sealed and filled by his Holy Spirit. And he will do the same thing for you. It It matters not where you come from or how much you know going into it. I'm the poster child of knowing nothing. I am the poster child that should not have received any of that. And yet that's what he does because this book is inerrant, infallible, and eternal. Now that alone should motivate you a little bit to be hungry. Ask your neighbor now, you hungry? Number two, we're almost finished. Yeah. Number two, we're almost finished. Not only do we need to have uh, an appetite, we need to have a proper attitude. Just tell your neighbor, attitude adjustment, just go ahead and tell him. Do you ever say that to your children? You need to have an attitude adjustment. Have you ever said that to your children? Yeah. Okay. Have you ever said it to your spouse? If you choose to, send it like a postcard or text. Okay. Don't do it up close and personal. Attitude adjustment. Okay. Every now and then we all need an attitude adjustment. Okay. Your preacher needs one. You need one. Kendra needs two or three. I need one. I mean, all of us need one. Okay. We need an attitude adjustment. Well, it's it's true regarding the Word of God and how we approach it. So listen now in Nehemiah. Chapter 8, moving forward in verse 5. So Ezra, the scribe, the priest, he opened the book in plain view of all the people, for he was elevated above the people. And when he opened the book, all the people just stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people replied, Amen, Amen. And they lifted their hands. And then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Having a proper attitude about the Word of God is critical for us as believers. It's critical for me as a preacher because it's not just another book. It's the Theonustus, the breath of God. In the Old Testament, when the Jews would pen Scripture, copying them to preserve them, when they got to the name or the letters for God, Yahweh, they would go perform a ceremonial cleansing they would wash their hands, and they would change writing instruments. And then they would come back with this reverential fear and write his name. They got it. They had an attitude that was right. That this is God speaking to us, breathing on us, giving us himself. Okay? And if they made a mistake, they didn't get out the bottle of Whiteout. They didn't backspace on their laptop. They destroyed the whole manuscript and started over. Why? Why? because they had the right attitude about scripture. And we need to have the right attitude about scripture. It says, when he blessed the Lord, the great God, they all responded, amen. Why? Were they wanting to be seen? Amen, yeah, I've got this, amen. No, something stirred in their soul, man, from this book. S- words from a page breathed by God spoken into the soul move you to a place where you're wow they put their hands up and said amen for five hours and then they did it on a regular basis now we live in a culture where churches are pretty quiet sometimes I I wish you were a black church willing to holler a little bit amen me a little bit that's right me a little bit I got that mm mm-hmm a little bit most time I get crickets. I'm gonna change this name of the church to Sturkey Hills Church of the Crickets. Okay. Now, 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 watch this. Have you ever have you ever heard me or another preacher say something that you knew God just spoke into the depth of your being? Have you ever heard something like that where somebody says something from Scripture? And you're like, well, why do you say that to me? Raise your hand if you have. I want to, I want to I want to free you up and let you know it's okay when that happens to say oh my, amen. Amen simply means so be it. I agree, let it be, that's right. So right now let's practice. Everybody say amen. Amen. See, it's okay. Nobody died of a heart attack. I mean, aneurysm, nothing. You're still here. Try it again, Amen. amen. It's okay to say amen every now and then. I'll hear on occasion, Jeremy over here say amen, and I appreciate it. I'll hear a few others. Dan will amen me every now and then. Brian will amen me. Brother in the back, amen me sometimes, maybe double time. Amen, Brother Joel. None greater, though, than a friend of mine who the Lord took home, Jeff Sloan. Jeff Sloan, when I would preach at Second Baptist, he'd sit right on the front. He didn't just say amen. He would like, from his his gut, holler. Now, pardon this. This is what he would do. I'd preach. I'd say something. He'd stand up. Hey! Like, that's what he'd say. I'd say, like, what? You know? And, and I was preaching one day, and he was on the front row, and there were two girls in the youth group, it was probably middle school, early high school, and when he hollered, I, I, I think they needed to go change their underclothes. I mean, they were more their faces, their eyes. I mean, because why? Because the Holy Spirit of God lived in him just like he lives in me. And when the Holy Spirit tells me and I say something that's of the Spirit and it resonates with him, he couldn't contain himself. Oh, he just, it's okay. It's okay when God speaks to your soul to respond. Not only that, it moved them to a place where where they put their hands up in worship. And it wasn't, hey, everybody look at my hands. I'm more spiritual than the rest of you. It was like, wow, I'm amazed that in this moment, right now, the God of the universe who whispered everything into existence is whispering down deep in my soul, okay? And in that moment, sometimes when we sing, I find myself in that place like, wow, that is it. That is right. Amen, it's true, okay? And it's, okay, now how, how is that, that, that? The simplicity of this thing that is most often disregarded and downplayed and debated does that because in hebrews 4 12 it says for the word of god is living and it's active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword piercing even to the point of dividing the soul from the spirit clark you know what that's talking about don't you we cuts man it just goes right down he goes on and he says and the joints from the marrow It's able to judge the desires and the thoughts of the heart. It cuts right down deep where you are and gets real and pushes through the clutter and the confusion and the facade and the lies and the misconceptions. And all of a sudden, you stand there naked and revealed. Okay, I get it now. And I'm going to tell you, if you had not had that in a while, go for it. You will not be disappointed. I remember several years ago, I was driving home and I was listening to a message by a guy named Chuck Swindoll. He's an old guy, a preacher from Texas. And he was president for a while the seminary I went to and he just, he just speaks to me. And he was preaching and I'm driving down the road and he's just, it's on the radio. And he, all of a sudden he said something that just pierced to the separating of the marrow and the bones. And I started weeping, I don't cry a lot. I started weeping that it was so real I want to to invite you, church, Christians, believers, all of us, pursue that. Let's get in that. Let's get in this book and see what God does. And we will not ever be disappointed. Now, let me close this with a little story, uh, what this looks like. I'm amazed that God sends grandchildren into our life and children to teach us deep things. So I have a little buddy, his name's Judson, he just turned four, He's my grandson, I have a wonderful little granddaughter, she hadn't taught me anything much other than how good it is to love somebody so sweet, but this little grandson of mine swims amazing like a little fish, and he started out swimming in the shallow waters, and man, he just swim and swim and swim, Papa, go out there, I swim to you, I go out there and he'd swim to me. Papa, I'm going to swim to the steps. I'm swimming to the steps. Papa, go over to the other side. I'm going to swim to you. Just swim, 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 swim. Just unbelievable. Spend more time underwater than on top of the water. I'm amazed by it. And then he noticed that if he threw his toys in the deep end, Bubba, who's Clark, or I would swim down in the deep end and get his toys. And he swims with his eyes open. I wear a mask because I'm amazed. He's just underwater like this. And he'd go underwater and watch me and Bubba go down and get the toys out of the deep end. So about a week and a half ago, he had been venturing out because he can get to the deep end where it starts sloping off on his tiptoes. And he'd been going out there, and he'd step off, and then he'd swim back. He'd step off, and he'd swim back. So about a week ago, he said, "Papo, I want to touch the deep end because he has this reverential fear of the deep end. He'll dive off the dive board, swim to the ladder. That's it. He's, he's got this reverential fear of the deep end. But he told me, he said, "Papo, I want to touch the deep end. I said, Okay. So I took him out there, and I, I waded down on the side of the slope, and I'm in the water about right here. And I'm holding him, and I said, how's that? No, I won't touch the bottom. I'm like, hmm. And so he goes, oh. He held his breath, and then he just did the dead man float, I guess thinking he was going to sink, okay? And I'm like, this ain't happening. I said, you want to touch the bottom of the deep end? Yeah. I said, you ready? He said, yeah. I said, hold your breath. He goes, oh. And I took his little body, and I mashed him down to about eight feet of water, seven and a half feet of water. And he touched, and then he just dead man floated. He's letting bubbles out. As soon as he got to the top, he said, do it again. I bobbed that little guy about 50 times. I'll call it baptizing him. About 50 times. Why? Because he enjoyed the shallow end, but he knew there was something else out there that's better than just playing in the shallow end. And he wanted to taste and see what it was. And now, man, he loves it. And to get there, he trusted his old silly Pompo enough to go out there with me and allow me to help him see what was in the deep end. Now, listen to me. Listen to me. You have a godly father who's given you this book to help you get into the deep end of where he hangs out. In your journey, in your pilgrimage, He's inviting you to the deep end. He's not sending you into the deep end. He's already standing there. Inviting you to come out and play in the deep end. And see where the good stuff hangs out. And he'll do it for you. Just like I did it for my grandson. And just like he's done it for me. And I'm inviting our church. To take a swim. In the deep end. So that this book never ever becomes the missing link. Between us and our God. Amen. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Lord God, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for your word. I thank you so much that locked away in your amazing book, chapter eight of Nehemiah, reminding us of the greatness of your word. God, help us develop an appetite and the proper attitude which positions us and postures us for the greatness of your revelation to us. One by one in the moment where we are. And it's so good. And God, I pray right now that there may be some in this room who hear this talk about the greatness of who you are. They hear the talk about the greatness of Jesus, your son, dying in our place. But it's foreign to them Because they've never received your grace. God, I know I can't speak into the depth of the soul of anybody. But I know your Holy Spirit can. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do like it did me so many years ago. And reach down into the fog, into the cloud, into the confusion. And touch a heart, a soul, a mind, and a spirit. And invite them into your kingdom. Just reveal to them how much you love them right where they are, and how much you want them to be a part of you, and how you've done everything possible in Jesus to make it happen, and that they can simply place their faith and their trust and their life in Jesus as Savior and Lord of their life, and instantly be adopted into your kingdom, made right with their Creator, and be given a destiny in heaven with you. For those that need to be saved today, born again, I pray that you'll convict their heart and they would receive that grace today. For others, God, I pray that we would develop an appetite and the right attitude towards your word moving forward so we can see what it is you have for us as your people. We give you the praise and the glory for all of it. You are an amazing God. In Jesus' name.